Well, good morning. Good morning and early Merry Christmas to you. It's been a great service this morning. I love our worship band. They've done a great job as always. You even got a little Beethoven in the middle of that. Did you realize that? You know, you probably know it as the Die Hard song. Joyful, joyful, we adore thee. Because Die Hard's a Christmas movie, you know, and it's, okay. Uh, so it was great. Uh, just And as Michael mentioned, it's been a weird year. Let me tell you how weird this year is. So my favorite football team, University of Houston, found out they're playing in a bowl game this week, Christmas Eve. They're playing Hawaii in the New Mexico Bowl in Frisco, Texas. <laughs> That's 2020 for you right there. So... Uh, it is good to see y'all. We, we do, speaking of Christmas Eve, we do have uh, three Christmas Eve services. They are full. Uh, people, they are completely reserved, but we are not turning anyone away. People who come without a ticket, we've got, we're going to have a great setup for them in Harrington Hall. We're going to decorate it. It's not just going to look like the Fellowship Hall, uh, and they'll be able to stream the service in there and, and still get to take pictures in front of the tree and everything. Uh, let me just say one more time, if you have tickets this week that you know you're not going to use, I'm not saying, yeah, well, my cousins may come in, so we're that's fine. But if you know you're not going to use a ticket that you have, let us know, because we do have a small waiting list of people who are hoping to have tickets. So let us know this week if you can, Monday or Tuesday. Let's turn to Luke 2, verse 22 tonight. Tonight? Today. It's 2020. I can blame everything on that, right? So uh, 10 years ago, my grandfather, my uh, mom's dad died, and I did the funeral. And I, I'm a very fortunate person in that I grew up around all four grandparents. I, I mean, very few people today get to have that experience. And all four of my grandparents were still alive when I turned 30. So I had them near me, I had them close to me, and still in good health from, for a lot of my growing up years and even early adulthood. And all of them were special to me. All of them made a profound impact on me. But I want to tell you a little bit about my grandpa Williams, my mom's dad, uh, the one I was, I was referring to earlier. Uh, he, was, he was a dairy farmer, uh, lived in our little unincorporated community of Hope, Texas his entire life. The only time he ever left was when he had a stint in the Navy at the end of World War II and they sent him to San Diego and then the Philippines. Uh, he, he never went to college. He graduated high school. He was very proud of that. But in spite of all this, his lack of worldliness, his lack of higher education, he knew more about the Bible than anybody else I knew my whole growing up time. Uh, when he was a little boy, his family was a Christian family, but, the, but his dad didn't go to church. I never met my great-grandfather, but not a church-going man. And usually what happens in that case, when the, when the father refuses to go, the children grow up and they refuse to go. But that didn't happen to my grandfather. He grew up in the Methodist church. His mom took him every Sunday and came to know Christ, met my grandmother, joined the Baptist church, and then went on to be a, a real leader in that church. In fact, he was basically the youth minister. Even though he had a full-time job, he was the leader of the teenagers. He, he would, every so often, on a pretty frequent basis, they'd have nights where they'd have volleyball games and Bible studies and uh, candy. And my, my grandfather was a, love, a huge Dr. Pepper fan. That was his drink of choice. Um, the Dr. Pepper bottles used to say 10, 2, and 4 on them because that's when you were supposed to drink it every day. He thought that was in the Bible because uh, he did it. But uh, the, And he would bring bottle after bottle of Dr. Pepper to those kids. In fact, the Dr. Pepper man actually stopped at his house. That's, uh, that's how much he bought. 
Now, later on, by the time I was around, he had graduated up to being the chairman of the deacons in our church, perpetual chairman of the deacons. No one ever, no one else ever wanted that office, so he kept it. Uh, he was also the leader uh, or the Sunday school teacher for the men's Sunday school class. That's how small our church was. We had one men's Sunday school class. It met in the sanctuary, and he taught it. And I told all these stories uh, of my grandfather's faith on that day at that funeral service. And my cousin afterwards came up to me, who's uh, also in ministry, and she said, wow, I had no idea that grandpa's faith was so strong. I wish I'd spent more time around him. And it made me sad to hear her say that because, you know, I, I was so sad that she had missed him. And I understood, you know, she was, she's 18 years younger than me. So by the time she got to be a, a teenager and young adult, he was already in the early stages of Alzheimer's. He wasn't really himself. She lived at a distance from him, whereas I lived close by. She basically knew him as this kindly old farmer rancher guy who would give her $100 at Christmas. And her, her dad is a pastor. Her, her other grandfather was a pastor, so she had her spiritual heroes. But at the same time, I thought, man, I, I hate that you didn't get to know him the way I did. I hate that you missed him. And I say all that because my contention is most of the people singing Christmas carols this Christmas season are missing Jesus, the one that Christmas is about. And I mean that on two different levels. Certainly, certainly thousands of our neighbors right here in Montgomery County don't know Jesus in any kind of saving way. And that includes a lot of our neighbors who have some history in church, who maybe have heard the stories of Jesus, maybe even been through rituals like baptism or like confirmation, but they don't, they don't actually know him. They know of him, but they don't know him. And an increasing number of our neighbors, as more and more people move to our nation, more and more people move into our area who are of other faiths, more and more people are being raised in, in, in uh, homes that have no Christian background, more and more of our neighbors know virtually nothing about Jesus. Now, that's one way in which our neighbors are missing him. On another level, though, there's the many, many Christians I know, probably some in this room. I'm not the Holy Spirit, so I'm not, I don't know who I'm talking about, but probably some in this room, probably some watching at home, but certainly lots and lots of Christians who would legitimately and genuinely say, I trust Jesus for my salvation. I know he's my savior. I know my sins are forgiven. I know heaven is my eternal home. And yet when you observe their lives, there's virtually no difference between the way they live and the way the people in that first category live. Ex aside from a few superficial things, like they go to church on Sundays, maybe they abstain from using bad language, especially when the preacher's not around. Uh, they they avoid, avoid certain so-called big vices, but, but they're not any better at loving their neighbor. They're not any better at being kind to those who are mean to them. They're not any more forgiving. They're not any more gracious. They're not any more compassionate. They're not making a difference in the world. They don't have joy, peace, and hope. They're missing Jesus. They're a lot like my cousin was in reference to my grandpa. They, knew, they know Jesus is someone who's given them something special, something precious, but they don't really know him, and it shows. And the reason why I can so confidently and cynically say that that's a, a, hard, a huge number of Christians is that's why the church is in the state it's in. That's why the church is not making the impact on our nation that it should. We want to blame the media. We want to blame people who don't believe like us. It's us. We have the Holy Spirit. Nothing can stop the church of Jesus Christ except the church of Jesus Christ. And because so many of us are not following him faithfully, not, not really knowing him and, and pursuing him, that's the cause of the state of our nation today. 
Okay, let's talk about somebody today who didn't miss Jesus. Absolutely, positively got every bit of him he could, and that was a man named Simeon. He's part of the Christmas story, rarely talked about at Christmas, and I submit to you that at the time of Jesus' birth, he knew more about Jesus than anybody on earth, even his parents. So let's lay, take a look at his story. It's found in Luke 2, 22. This incident takes place eight days after Christ's birth. As his parents take him from his birthplace in Bethlehem to Jerusalem, it says, verse 22, and when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now let me just stop there and, and, and let you know what they're doing here is, obe is being obedient to Leviticus chapter 12. And I know you've got the book of Leviticus uh, memorized, so I won't insult you, but uh, for those of you that don't, Leviticus 12 tells us that every male child who is born in Israel, this is part of the law of Moses, has to be consecrated before God. What this essentially is, is you're offering to God as an offering. You're saying, this child is now yours. But God has... A, has created it in such a way, this ritual, so that you buy the child back from God. You bring an offering, a, a year-old male lamb and a bird of some kind, a dove or a pigeon. And you do that, in doing that, in purchasing this child back from God, you're saying, I know this is really your child, God, and I get to raise him, I get to raise her, I get to, I get to be the manager, the, the servant of your most priceless possession, which should tell you how God feels about parenting and what our responsibility there is. So this is what Mary and Joseph are doing here. Now there was a man in Jerusalem, this is verse 25, whose name was Simeon and, his man, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Remember that phrase. And the Holy Spirit was upon him and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him, according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. So that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Now, if you've ever raised a child, you know some, some semblance of the, the emotion that Mary and Joseph felt as they brought their child out into public for the first time excitement, a little nervousness. They were also participating in an ancient ritual, something that was a key part of being Jewish. Now at that time, there were between one and two and a half million people living in Israel, and, and most of them were Jews. And so you can imagine how often this ritual was repeated every single day in the temple in Jerusalem. It's sort of like when you're having a, a heart bypass or a, you know, any kind of surgery, you're thinking, oh, this is very important. And yet you go to the hospital and, and your cardiologist does that procedure five or six times a day, right? It's nothing unusual. But this one was unusual, not just because of who it was, but because of what happened. 
There's this old man, Simeon, who loves God and who's been praying to see the Messiah. And he hears this, this prompting in his spirit that says, go to the temple. I've got something for you there. And when he gets to the temple, he sees the priest. He sees this young couple, this young impoverished couple. How do we know they were impoverished? Because Mary and Joseph couldn't afford a lamb for the offering. They brought two doves instead. They see this young, impoverished couple handing their baby over to the high priest. And the priest is holding this child up to the Lord and, and blessing him. And Simeon comes along and snatches the baby away. That had to be a moment of a little bit of, dis, uh, of disconcertedment, if that's a word, a little concern for Mary and Joseph to see this happen. And then he begins to prophesy over this child. And he says to God, okay, Lord, you can take me now. I've got more than enough. My life is complete. Now, folks, that is the place God wants us all to be. The place where we say, Lord, I don't need anything. You've more than blessed me. There are things that if you gave them to me, fine, but I don't need them. I've got all I want. And not many people are there. How do you get there? How do you become this person of joy, this person who doesn't miss Jesus, the one who came to bring us abundant life? We see three things in Simeon's life that show us the way. Number one, this is a man who put his hope in the right place. And when I say hope, there's a difference between the way the world uses the word hope, the way we use the word hope, and the way it's used in Scripture. And every child in this room, every child who's watching me at home, every child, period, knows what hope is because they know how many days it is from now until Christmas, right? And they've been keeping count of that since early, early October, maybe earlier than that. Some of, you, some of them probably know to the hour or the minute. You've been walking through your living room and you see the tree and you see mom or dad has wrapped a present or two with your name on it and you've already taken it and you've shaken it up because you want to know what it is. And you know that Christmas morning, Friday morning, there's going to be even more presents under that tree and they're going to have your name on them. And oh boy, it is gonna, it's going to be so hard to sleep between now and then. And it's good that you're out of school, but then again, it's kind of bad because you've got, just got this free time to sit and think about, oh, it's coming. Christmas is coming. I remember that excitement. I'll give you another illustration of hope. I met Carrie uh, when we were freshmen in college. We started dating uh, middle of our sophomore year. December 2nd, 1989 was our first date. Also, the day Andre Ware won the Heisman. So, you know, <laughs> go Cougs. So uh, both of those things are important to me, one more than the other. Um, and then we got engaged a year later. So middle of the, so middle of the junior year of college. And I did this knowing that we would not be able to get married until we graduated a year and a half later. That's a long engagement, which is not generally a good idea. And yet, there was something good about it for us. It, it gave us something to look forward to. You see, that's what hope is. Hope is when you have something you're looking forward to. Hope is when there's something out on the horizon that you say, once we get there, everything's going to be great. And for Carrie and me, that was May 23rd, 1992. That date just loomed out there in the distance. So if anything disappointing happened, it's okay. We're, we're one day closer to getting married. It was sort of like that Beach Boys song, which is one of my favorites. It, you know, it's going to make it that much better when we can say goodnight and stay together. Oh, wouldn't it be nice? You know the song, right? I love that song because it reminds me of that period of my life. And, and it was so exciting. We, we were so looking forward to it. And man, was she disappointed. But it was, that's a great picture of hope. 
Wouldn't it be nice when this happens, when this occurs? And yet the Gospels are littered with stories of people who put their hope in the wrong thing and the incredible damage it did to them. Your hope is a precious thing. You put it in the wrong thing, and it's devastating. Think about a wealthy young man who went up to Jesus one day. By his own uh, accounting, he was highly moral. He was devoutly religious. And yet what mattered most to him, where his true hope was, was in the vast wealth that he had managed to accumulate. And we know this because when Jesus said, the one thing standing between you and getting right with God and being the person he wants you to be is your fortune. If you give that up, if you give that to the poor, you will be able to follow him and enter the kingdom of God. And he said, I can't do that because my hope is in my wealth. Jesus goes home to his hometown of Nazareth and the home folks have heard about the miracles he's performed. They're excited to see him. Come on, Jesus, come in and and preach for us in the synagogue. We want to hear these incredible messages you've been preaching to others. And he stands and he reads from Isaiah 61 and he, he speaks on Isaiah 61 and people are all, they're just gushing with praise. Can this really be Joseph's son? Look at how well he speaks. And then he says, And then he says, (laughs) then he says, but don't you understand, this is not just for us Jews. God loves the Gentiles too. He wants them in his kingdom as well. And the unthinkable happens. The place erupts in anger. The people of his hometown, the people who watched him grow up, some probably related to him, take him to the brow of a hill at the outside of the city and want to throw him down and kill him. If Jesus wasn't who he was, he would have died that day. Why would they do this thing? Because their true hope was in their racial pride. My race matters most. And if you tell me that other race is just as important as mine, I will lose it because that's where my hope is. Think about the crowds that followed Jesus that wouldn't even let him have a moment to himself. He was a true celebrity for a year or two there. But then by the time he died and rose again, book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, so there were only 120 people following him at that point. What happened? What happened was the crowd's true hope was in political salvation. They had this idea that Jesus was going to be their true hope, their their one who would come and give them what they always wanted, a king who would make them powerful and wealthy and safe and prosperous. And when it turned out that Jesus wasn't interested in an earthly throne or political power at all, they turned on him because their true hope was in the wrong thing. Or the religious leaders who should have been the ones who who knew most about God, and yet when God was right there in their presence, they rejected him and, in fact, conspired to kill him. How could they do this? Because their true hope was in their own morality, their own religious devotion, their own idea that we are the ones who hold up the standard of righteousness. And when Jesus came along saying things like, no, 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 you have to be born again. You You have to die to yourself and become a new person, and only I can do that for you. They rejected that. That was offensive to them and their own sense of self because their hope was in the wrong thing. Simeon put his hope in the right thing. He says he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Nothing mattered more to him than the idea that someday God was sending salvation, and I want to be here for it. When he saw it happen, he said, this is what I've been hoping for. I knew God wouldn't let me down. See, that's the thing. If you put your hope in anything other than Jesus, even good things, I want to get married someday. That's a good thing. I want to have children someday and raise them up to know the Lord. Good for you. 
I have kids right now. I want to I want to invest in them so that they'll be happy and successful. I, I've got grandkids. I want to mentor them and bless them. I I want to I want to be the best there is at what I do with the gifts God has given me. I want to build up a, a successful and and prosperous financial empire so I can be good to others and I can serve God with it. All those are good things, but if you put your hope in any of those things, they will crush you. Your spouse will let you down. Your kids will not turn out the way you hope they will. Your, your career, well, you can't have it forever. Nothing can support the weight of your hopes except Jesus. What is your true hope? Second thing that brought Simeon joy, he knew what Jesus came to do. See, a lot of people look at Jesus and they lump him in with all the other founders of the different world religions. He's like, he's like Muhammad. He's like Buddha. He's like Joseph Smith. And they say, see, all these people came along and said, I have found the way. You just follow this way and you'll get there. And, and that's not true because Jesus was different. Jesus didn't say, I've found the way. He said, I am the way. He didn't say like these other religious leaders, okay, sit down, let me tell you the truth. He said, no, I am the truth. He didn't say, okay, if you will follow this path, you'll find life. No, he said, I am the life. You don't need to do anything. You just believe in me. I've done it. Jesus came to bring us salvation. And although I'm sure Simeon didn't know the, the complete story of the gospel yet, he knew that this Messiah came not just to be a political ruler, but instead to be a savior. I used to wonder, I mean, this is going to sound pretty bad on my part. Uh, this is a confession, you might say, even though I was raised in a church where I heard the gospel Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. I heard the gospel from my parents, from my grandparents during the week. And yet, as a young man, it used to puzzle me that my pastors and my Sunday school teachers would talk about how, boy, the, the message of the gospel is just the best news you've ever heard. And I'd think, well, is it? I mean, yeah, I'm glad Jesus is my Savior, but I didn't understand why that was such good news, why I should be so excited about that. Sounds odd to say it, but it's true. And, and maybe if you're, if you're honest, you would admit, you know, there are lots of things I'm more excited about than the gospel. Let me explain what's going on in our hearts. See, Simeon understood. As he said to Mary, this child is destined for the rising and falling of many. In other words, as Jesus would say when he came along, when he grew up, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. He said that over and over again. I came, I came to turn this world upside down. See, this is why so many of us don't really experience the gospel as good news. Because if if you're comfortable, if you're doing really well, if the system, the way the world works right now is working out well for you, then the gospel is not good news. But on the other hand, if you're on the bottom, if you're struggling, if you're frustrated, if you're disappointed, if you're crushed beneath the, the weight of this world, the gospel is the best news you've ever heard because it's Jesus coming into the world saying, I'm starting an alternative kingdom where the self-centered and the self-righteous and the power-hungry and the bully don't have a place. I'm starting a new kingdom where people who were seen as nothing suddenly find themselves sons and daughters of the king. Where losers become heroes, where orphans get a family, where outsiders become insiders. In other words, in other words, as he says, Jesus is a light of revelation to the Gentiles. 
Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but my guess is most of you are majority non-Jewish blood, right? The good news is it doesn't matter anymore. Your blood doesn't matter. His blood matters. In other words, you and I are the, the forgotten stepsister and the charming prince has chosen us. Except it's better than that because in the story of Cinderella, the prince doesn't notice her until she gets all dressed up beautifully in that dress that the fairy godmother provides. And then she's the most beautiful in the land. But what happens 10, 20, 30, 40 years later when Cinderella doesn't look like the most beautiful in the land anymore? See, we don't like to think that way. I, in fact, let me put it this way. If you, are, if you are married and your spouse says to you, you know what I love about you? You are the most attractive, fascinating, intelligent, funny person I've ever met. That may really feed your soul to hear that, but that's not good news because there will come a day, I hate to tell you, when you won't be the most attractive, fascinating, and humorous, and intelligent person he or she has ever met. I don't know. I just haven't ever seen anybody that gets better looking and more fascinating the older they get. I'm sure not there. See, Jesus is a different kind of handsome prince. He doesn't love us because we're beautiful. He loves us because that's who he is. See, it's better if your spouse says to you, I love you because we made a promise to each other, and I'm not going to break that. I love you because that's what we've chosen to do, and I will never change. Jesus says to us, I love you not because of who you are, but because of who I am, and I'm not going to change. And so he came to do that for us, and that brought Simeon joy, and it should bring us joy. Number three, he knew what it would cost. He knew what it would cost. See, what Mary probably remembered the most about this day is when Simeon looked her square in the eye and said, a sword will pierce your soul too. Now, why Mary? Why did he single her out? Well, as we've already established, it's pretty likely that Joseph didn't live until Jesus' adulthood. So Mary had to finish raising him on her own, which you might think to yourself, well, at least there were no discipline problems, right? He's Jesus. He's perfect. And yet, it was still not easy being the mother of the Messiah. Just think about from the day he left home until the end of his life, you had to hear stories about how many people hated him and how the religious leaders of your country wanted him dead. And you had to stand there at the foot of his cross watching him die. That's every parent's worst nightmare. See, Simeon, he probably didn't know about the cross. He probably didn't know all the details, but he knew there was something costly that was going to happen. He knew that the Messiah didn't come to rule. He came to offer himself. And for Simeon, that brought him joy because he knew if we're worth that to God, then we must really be worth that. If we're worth that to God, then he's willing to do whatever it takes for us. And that is true joy. Jill Briscoe was a, an author and speaker. Uh, she was invited to come to the former Yugoslavia, to the nation of Bosnia in the early 1990s and speak at a refugee camp. Now, some of you are too young to remember this and some of you have forgotten, but in the early and mid-90s, there was a horrible war in the former Yugoslavia. You know, when the Soviet Union collapsed and the communist bloc fell apart, lots of great things happened and then some terrible things happened, like Yugoslavia fractured into three different nations, Bosnia, Croatia, and Serbia, and they started fighting each other and thousands were killed. And there was a religious element to it also 
also because some of those people were Muslim and some claimed to be Christian and they were fighting each other in ways that were just horrific. Jill Briscoe gets invited to this refugee camp and she goes and this is an accomplished woman, a woman who's spoken to crowds of thousands, who's not intimidated by crowds at all. But she gets there and stands in front of this in this soccer stadium, in front of this crowd of bedraggled people, most of them women, because the husbands, fathers, and sons had been killed and they'd seen it. Most of them Muslim, and, and not just Muslim, but Muslims who'd been at war with people who called themselves Christian. Many had been raped. All had experienced horrific things. And she thought to herself, I don't know what to say to these people. None of the, none of the speeches and sermons I usually give would even mean anything to them. I, I just don't. And so in her, in her desperation, all she knew to do was just tell them the story of Jesus. And she started at the manger and said, you know, when God came into this world in the form of a human being, he was dirt poor. He didn't even have a bed to sleep in. When he was still a baby, he had to flee. He had to become a refugee like you because the government wanted him dead. All his life, he was pursued by people who hated him. And when he died, I know, I know you've seen pictures. I know you've seen crucifixes, but don't you believe it? It was worse than that. He was, he was beaten beyond recognition. He was stripped of all of his clothes. He was humiliated. He was tortured. She said, I, I want you to understand all the things that have happened to you happened to him. Just like you, he was homeless. Just like you, he had to flee. Just like you, he suffered unjustly. But the difference is you didn't have a choice. The world did this to you against your will. He had a choice. He could have refused to come. Knowing what we would do to him, he could have refused to come. And yet he came anyway. She said, I know, I know you haven't been told this about God, and maybe the God you've heard about isn't like this at all, but the one true God is like this. The God who is real suffers. He suffers with you. He suffers for you. You can give your pain to him. And she said across that soccer stadium, she saw people falling to their knees and crying out to God, arms raised, tears streaming down their faces because for the very, very first time they understood the real good news, which is there is a God and he loves you so much he'd rather die for you than live without you. There's no better news than that. And when that really gets into your heart, I, I don't just mean, okay, this is how I get to heaven. Okay, I'll take these steps. I believe, I trust. That's fine. That's good. You're saved. Jesus doesn't require a certain brand of faith as long as you trust in him. It's who you believe in, not how you believe in him that matters. I get that. But when that really gets inside of you and becomes the core of who you are, then you experience life more abundant. And you stop and you ask yourself, why did I wait so long? And so there are people perhaps who are watching this at home or sitting here who would say, yeah, I've never really gotten to that point. And others who would say, well, I, I can remember when I was serving Jesus with that kind of devotion, but somewhere down the line, I, I, I wandered away from him and made, made other things more important than that. And I'm missing him now. You can come to him anytime. All you've got to do is say, Lord, come and be the center of who I am. Be Lord of my life. I don't want to miss another single day without you being my true north, my constant guide, my Savior, and my God.